there, Green Future Growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app. And let's get growing. Join us for the fourth annual Free the Seeds Fair, Saturday, March 2nd, 9 to 3.30 at the Flathead Valley Community College Arts and Technology Building in Kalispell. As always, we'll be offering a free seed swap, 30 booths, and over 20 workshops of information and free resources just for you. And for kids ages 8 and up, we'll have activities all day long. So come on down, get some growing on, and it's free. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Welcome to the Organic Gardener Podcast today. It is Thursday, February 14th, Valentine's Day 2019. So I hope you're serene in 2019. And we have lots of snow here in Montana. And I have the most awesome Valentine's Day guest. I'm hoping I can just post this raw right after we talk. Because I know you guys are going to love her. She was our CrossFit Gardener of 2015. Back from Lower Valley Farm is Mandy Girth. Thanks, Mandy, for coming on today. Jackie, thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you because I just, you know, love your guys' story. You've taught me so much and just, I know you have all these cool things going on and listeners are just going to love this. So thank you, uh, if they didn't hear our first interview back um, in 2015, was it 2015 or 2016? Anyway, tell them a little bit about you and Jay and your family and your farm and what you've got going on. Okay, um, so I am Mandy Girth, farmer and co-owner at Lower Valley Farm in Kalispell, Montana. My husband, Jay Cummings, and I are going into our seventh year of full-time farming. We run, uh, I think we're at about four acres of production. Two of that is, oh, it's all organic, and we primarily sell through a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture. Two acres of that is using the intensive model that was kind of pioneered by JM, who I know you've had on the show. And the other two acres is in uh, less intensive crops. So that's where we keep our winter squash, our sweet corn, our potatoes. Um, They're all in a separate rotation than the intensive. So I think that's new from the last time I talked to you. So, yeah, we go really hard um, May through October. We run a 20-week vegetable CSA. We're at the Kalispell Farmer's Market every week. And then we also do a tiny, sizable amount of wholesale to some local restaurants, um, through a local food aggregate, and uh, directly to a couple small uh, local grocery store chains. So that's the overview of the farm. We also have three school-aged children. They're seven, nine, and 11. So they've grown up on the farm, very literally. And um, Jay and I are the co-owners. We run the farm together. We have an awesome crew that we've built over the years that really helped make this farm go. But under all of that is our community. We couldn't do any of this without our awesome customer base. So that's that's kind of, is that a intro? I, I could talk that. about the farm forever, so. Okay, well, go ahead. What do you want to tell <laughs> us next? Because, like, we, I think what we want to hear is, like, your journey 
through these seven years. Like when I talked to you, so I think what happened was I talked to you at the very beginning of 2016, but you were 2015. I mean, you are like the number one podcast. Like when people go to my website, like the first person they see is you and then JM and then uh, Aaron Bittikian. Like you are right there because you gave us so much value that day. And I just love that interview so much. And just, um, but like, so that was three, three, like almost halfway into your journey. You guys were still at the beginning. So, so what's yeah. been happening and, and, and what's new or what, what do you want to tell us? Like, maybe you want to go back to the beginning a little. Oh, back to the beginning. So, um, we started out thinking that we would be running, uh, livestock and that the vegetable operation would just kind of be like what helps us make money while we get a livestock operation up and going. Um, even before the beginning, uh, what made us want to do this is that our family had a life changing experience when we started eating nutrient dense foods. So we had a kitchen garden and uh, we weren't farming, but we volunteered on farms a lot. And we really loved being a part of our local farm community that way. Uh, we were part, this was in Indiana, um, we were part of a raw milk share. And so, you know, that's a thing you can do in Indiana, not in Montana. But um, so we were feeding our young kids all this super local food, grass-fed beef, lamb, um, we had some backyard chickens, but we were buying, uh, eggs from pastured eggs. And we slowly with each investment that we made in making lifestyle changes with our food, we saw our young children's health changing dramatically. Um, especially one of our children had, uh, some pretty serious sensory processing issues. So we got in really deep and we're spending pretty much all our food money on food. And at some point we we're like, why don't we have a farm? So it was like, well, we don't have a farm because we aren't farmers and we don't know how to farm, but we did have access to land here in Montana. Um, if I could go back to myself seven years ago, first of all, I'd give her a really big hug and be like, you have no idea what you're getting into. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> We're like, we have a garden. We can do this. <laughs> what what I would go back and tell myself is like having land is not having a farm. You know, so we had some access to land that had been in Jay's family for three generations. Um, his parents have put it in a conservation easement. So um, we knew the land was here, but we've, built the farm and all the infrastructure. It was just a, you know, a, a conventional hay field. Um, so. Well, that's what we want to hear. How did you build this farm <gasps> that produces this like incredibly insane amount of nutrient, just delicious food. Like your food just melts in your mouth. Like it's, it's not like regular food that you see anywhere. Like going to the farmer's market is just, and the, and the table full, like I, it just, like I, cause we are maybe gardeners, but like, I can't right. imagine how you guys do what you do. Yeah. It's been a really steep learning curve. Um, so that first, before we made that huge dive, um, I read Joel Salatin's book, you can farm. I think that's what it's called or you can farm or you should farm. 
Um, and I was like, yeah, we can do this. Like, if people like us don't do this, who does? And now it's like, well, I don't know, maybe people with experience. <laughs> so that book, in combination with... Um, no, I hadn't even read James' book. Out. I don't think it was out yet. I don't think... Maybe it was. Sorry, I don't know. I don't know if I had read that or not. I think so. I'll go back and look and see. But um, I had read in Curtis Stone... I'm not sure his book was out yet, but there was lots of stuff on YouTube then. So we were just watching tons of things and um, we decided to go for it. And that first year we did everything by hand and we had a quarter acre of vegetables in production, which is tiny, right? Um, and then the second... That's what year, I feel like. Like I look at Mike's yeah. mini farm and I feel like it's huge, but then compared to like what I saw at your place on the farm tour... Right. It's it's nothing, and it's still overwhelming. But it's a lot. I mean, what makes it doable is our second year we invested in the BCS tractor, and that was amazing. And we basically just bought the tools that JM says to buy in the book. When I called BCS to make our order, he was like, oh, you must have read that book. <laughs> <laughs> So we started out there. We started with, uh, like, JM's template. And since then, like every farm, we've adapted it to what works here for us. We are in a similar climate to him, but I think our weather is a little more severe. Um, also, we're just north of Flathead Lake, and we get some pretty intense wind. So we've had to adapt lots of things for our climate. Um so and when, second, by having all that wind, that means you really have to worry about erosion, right? Yes. Um, we don't have too much erosion problems because we are always keeping the soil covered. So um, the problem where it comes from to keep the soil covered, we have invested in a tremendous amount of sandbags. And uh, the first round of sandbags was not the right ones. Now we buy the ones from Farmer's Friend LLC. They're the kind that can withstand extreme sun and wind, so they don't just poof and fall apart after a year. Um, so we buy lots of sandbags. So wait, what are the sandbags for? Like covering the ground with plastic? Uh, great question. So or like row cover? Or like I was thinking yes, we have cover to crop. cover. Um, so our row cover, we use probably about twice as many sandbags on the um, the windy side, which is from the south for us, as we do on the north side. And just little tricks like that, um, it took a while to figure that out. So yes, we cover use the sandbags for row cover, and also um, we use the extensive use of silage tarps that JM lays out in his book, and we also get those from Farmer's Friend LLC, those are, we've tried a couple different ones, and they're the best. Um, so, yes, lots of sandbags, even more than I've seen on other farms. And that's just because of the wind. So, we're wind pros now. Well, cool, because that can be trouble for all sorts yeah. of things besides covering your ground, like also for, like, your high tunnels. 
right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And Jay's got that really dialed in. He takes care of all of our infrastructure on the farm and he has some magic way of extra enforcement on the tunnels, which we learned the hard way. No, do you take those down in the winter or do you leave them up with the snow? Because like last year, like one of ours crumbled again. We've had several that it always amazes me that the plastic will hold and the metal or the wood will bend or snap. It is amazing. I mean, we have a really, we have a lot of snow here, right? So um, our large tunnels, they're 35 feet wide by 100 feet long. Those stay up over the winter. And then our small, they're called caterpillar tunnels, those come down. So we have six, uh, I think they're 12 foot wide by 100 foot long caterpillar tunnels. Um, and then we have two full size uh, tunnels that stay up over winter. Okay. Yeah. When we get heavy, wet snow, then we go out and bang the snow off of the tunnels to, so that they won't collapse. No, oh, good thinking. I think Mike was just so surprised last year. Like it was there, and it was, and then all of a sudden one day it just—I don't know what happened. Anyway, all right. So then, where were we at before I interrupted you? Um, we were talking about how did we go from, yeah, like. A family with three very young children who don't know what they're doing to where we're at now. Yeah. Um, so the first year was a quarter acre of vegetables that we did all by hand. And then the second year we bought the BCS with all the tools that JM outlines in his book. And the second year we went up to one acre, which is a big jump. Um, we were able to do that because of the BCS tractor. The third year, we went up to one and a half acres, but half an acre of that was non-intensive crops. So our squash and potatoes, we kept in a different rotation than the intensive crops. And that year, we bought um, uh, a four-wheel tractor, and we used that for our non-intensive crops. And we also use that for putting compost on the rows at the end of the season. So all of our weeding is done by hand. We're just using the BCS tractor for all of our intensive crops. And the four-wheel tractor is a completely different production system for the little bit of um, storage crops that we do for our CSA customers if that makes sense. So we've just slowly adapted over the years. And um, our fourth year, we brought in a full-time employee and she's wonderful. And then this year we had our one full-time employee and now we have five wonderful part-time people who work with us uh, May through October. So it's definitely not just Jay and I doing all of this. Um, They work with you every day from May through October, five um, days a week? Well, we have our full-time person is here, May through, or Monday through Friday, and she's actually here uh, April through October. And then how we've set up the systems on the farm is 
our one full-time person, she's trained to do lots of things. She's incredibly intelligent and just a really quick learner. So she can do so many things because we do different things every day of the week. And we do different, we have a system where we have different things we do before lunch and after lunch. So our part-time people are all trained to do a few things. And so on Monday and Wednesday, those are our fieldwork days. And those are the day that we have our field work, part-time fieldwork people come in. And Tuesday and Thursday are our big harvest days. And those are the days that our pack shed crews there. And Friday is the day we just harvest for market. And we go for a, quote, early out on Friday for the crew. So we have our field and our harvesters and pack shed workers there on Friday. And hopefully at one, they can all go and Jay and I get our office work done between one and five on Friday. So we have a really tight system and that's how we've made it work without interns. We don't use any interns. We only use paid employees and we have a young family. So we're attempting to keep our life structured for our children. <laughs> You know that a farm can just like swallow all your time. So that's been a big piece for us is learning how to create systems on the farm to make our life manageable and to make our farm run smoothly. So it's a positive place to work. That's really important to us. So. Well, so much there. I think, uh, like, I just, I don't even know where to start. Like, what's the difference between, like, a pack shed employee and a and a harvest employee and a field? Like, they're all different people? Yes. Yes, for now. Um, so, we've got one person who can do all of those jobs. And she's with us Monday through Friday full time. And then our t Monday, Wednesday field workers, those are people that we train how to weed how to pull silage tarps. Um, that's pretty, and how to transplant. So those are the three jobs that we're doing on Monday and Wednesday with the crew. Now, where do you find people that do that kind of work? Oh, that's that such want a to work for two days a week. Yeah. Um, or do they go to somebody else's farm the other two days? But then, do you have to be field days because of the market setup? Um. So we've been really fortunate to find great people. I've heard so many horror stories about hiring employees, and we've just had a great experience. Um, what we do is we put an ad out on Craigslist and through our social media and through our customer base. And we'll usually get about 20 applications for every job that we post, and that doesn't matter if it's field work or pack shed. And so we first do a phone interview. And the three questions I ask on the phone are, have you ever worked in a woman-run business? This is a question for men. <laughs> because we have primarily female crew here. And that's so important to us that someone, everyone coming into our team is comfortable listening to women. This has been a really big learning curve with this question. So that's my first question. 
And then uh, if it's somebody doing field work, we really love people who have had experience working in the sun, in the heat. And I ask if they've had heat stroke. Um, and then I just ask them why they want to work on a farm. And that's always interesting. And that varies a lot. And then we call their re references. And then we do a full day paid workday interview. And we usually know right away if they're a good fit for our crew. So if they are, we hire them at the end of the day. Um, and that's, that's been the process that we've used. Um, so we have the field workers, which is really a lot of fun. And then we have our pack shed crew, which is also a really fun place to work. It's always in the shade. It is wet, and that can be uncomfortable, but we make sure everybody has uh, the appropriate gear to wear to stay dry. Um, and on a hot, so sunny Montana day, that could be really nice. It's really nice. Which I think you have plenty of, right, in the fire. We do. Yeah. We The um, May is a little uncomfortable in the pack shed, and then October is really miserable. It's <laughs> really cold. Uh, so that's that's the downside of pack shed work. Um, but it's a fun place to be. They've got the radio going. It's really upbeat. We've got a And May, it's like, all right, it's starting, new season, everybody's jamming, and you know yeah. the good summer days are coming ahead. And, like, yeah, the thing in Montana, I think people don't, like, my parents just seem to take, like, a whole visit for it to sink in. But, like, you can off of work, and you have, like, an entire day of sunshine ahead of you to go play and vacation. And you're right by Flathead Lake, which is an incredible, like, it's right. not, like, I don't know. It's not like regular summer. It's like crazy summer. <laughs> it's so true. And the days are so long and beautiful. Yeah. And then the third uh, position that you asked about is the harvesting crew. And so um, my our full-time employee, Carrie, and I are our primary harvesters. And the people who will be working with us harvesting will work directly with us until we're confident that they've uh, learned how to do each task. Because it seems like, oh, making a bundle of radishes is not a big deal, right? But there's a lot to it, because we're very particular about how everything that leaves the farm looks, and that starts in the field. So it's a lot of training, because we grow 120 crops. So we usually start people out with harvesting side by side, uh, and then we can move when we're comfortable moving them onto tasks solo or we just work in groups. Um, but like, wait, can you walk us through like one step, like one, like pick a vegetable that like, I don't know, like beets or radishes or something like something you yeah. would tell the person you're training. Sure. Let's start with lettuce mix. Cause that's what we start people on. Oh, cool. So, um, we, uh, usually Carrie, Carrie does most of the lettuce mix now. She'll be harvesting lettuce mix. We harvest, uh, all of our beds are set up JM style, 30 inches on center. So we straddle the bed with her feet and we start by teaching people how to move like that and how to hinge at your hips so that you're not hurting your body. And um, we teach you about food safety with the knife, how nothing is allowed to touch the soil, touch the ground. Um, we have systems in place for how we move the tubs around to be really efficient. 
And, and then there's the actual cutting, right? So you have to cut the lettuce so it gets a nice regrowth and put it in the tub in a sanitary way. So um, that's, that's a good intro point for people because uh, it's like we sell tons of lettuce mix. First of all, it's our number one seller. It's a good one because um, we take food safety so seriously. We've gotten our lettuce mix really, really dialed in. So we just always start people with lettuce mix. It's also something that we grow continuously for 30 weeks, like May 1st through the end of October, we're harvesting lettuce mix three times a week. So it's something that you can learn how to do pretty well because we do it continuously. So many, and you know, I worry about that food safety thing. Like, I suppose I should probably take a food safety class if we were going to go. I never even think about that kind of stuff. (laughs) Yeah, if you want to sell vegetables, it's good to think about. And then, you know, for your own home consumption, I don't think it's as big of a deal, right, for home gardeners, unless if you have someone you're feeding that's high risk. So someone who's been on chemo or someone who has an autoimmune disorder, um, you might be having some special needs of someone you're feeding, then you maybe need to make sure that your knives are always sterile and that your tubs are never touching the soil. But for most... Your tubs can't touch the soil? Right. Because if you put a tub on the ground... So then how do you harvest? Like, where's the tub while you're harvesting? The tub is on the harvest cart, which gets sanitized at the end of every harvest day. Yeah. And then we can also... We have a couple tubs that nest inside of other tubs. And this is just stuff I've learned in food safety training. So those are the tubs that are, like, on the ground, right? There are tubs on the ground that we kind of scoot along with a clean tub inside of it. Because if one tub is in the ground and then you put it into a clean tub and then you pull that tub out, right? Like that's how we used to do it before I took the training. Then any soil that was on the ground gets in the tub, which, right, it's not a big deal because soil's life, soil's health. Also, for some special needs customers, um, it could be an issue, and um, we are looking eventually to getting GAP certified. Uh, so we're going ahead and using those standards on our farm now, even though we're not GAP certified. If that Can makes you explain sense. what GAP is? Sure, it's good. It's short for Good Agricultural Practices, and kind of like certified organic. Um, there's a certifier who comes to your farm. And they just run through a list and they want to see that all your systems are in place, that you're keeping your knives clean, that everybody washes their hands after they use the bathroom, that you have clean water that you're working with, um, and that it's a big deal for stuff to not be touching the ground. So those are kind of the the basics, but it there's a lot more to it. But um, it's not as big of a deal as it seems once you get used to it, once you have a system for it. I really like using the GAP standards now um, because it makes us do things like sanitize our harvest knives. You know, we used to not do it as often. 
So um, now we just do that like as a normal part of the day. And it's a good best practice, especially because we specialize in baby greens. And as a consumer, as a mom, it's something I take really seriously. So So many golden seeds you're sharing with us today. And just uh, I can think of so many things to say about that. I mean, just for one super quick, like that's one of the reasons I just feel like government regulation is so like as we're sitting on the tomorrow they're talking about another government shutdown well there's one great thing our government does just even making sure that people wash their hands that there's a sign in the bathroom that says you have to wash your hands after like that's a regulation i'll pay for like i love and i'm proud like i support the epa and all those kind of things but anyway i'm not gonna be on my pulpit i know (laughs) no and it's important to know um for, for when it comes to food safety when the, that's tied into the farm bill and initially they were going to make crazy rules with the food safety modernization act sometimes called FISMA that initially it was like uh there's going to be no way to have small farms anymore if this is the rules and guess who went to bat the small organic farmers, people just like Jay and I got super involved, not Jay and I specifically, but um, farms just like us where they have families and they're so busy. They're the ones who got involved and made the Food Safety Modernization Act something that small farms can do. Something I love about organic growers is that they're usually activists. And so part of, yes, food safety is annoying, and it's been made doable because of the activist community and the small organic small farm movement. So it's kind of cool. Well, that's good to hear. I always believe. What did Margaret Mead say? A small group of citizens. Nothing. Nothing will change without a small group of committed citizens. I'm butchering it. Sorry. Uh, so. <laughs> so you've gone a long ways from starting out on what was it? A quarter of an acre and then a half an acre and then a full acre? Four. We're at four. And you're at four now. So, but do you still have animals or now are you just solely vegetables? Um, we don't have any animals for sale. So we keep some just kind of homestead livestock for the kids. But they, um, after taking that food safety training, they're completely separate from our vegetable operation. So, yes. Okay, can I We've... ask you a question? And, like, sure. we might yeah. just cut this out. But, like, so there was this one year where Mike grew me, like, all this broccoli. And the squirrels got on it. And they chewed bits of it. And they pooped on it. And I just couldn't bring myself to eat that. Like, yeah. is that a good thing? Like, I felt so bad wasting it. I was like, well, I'm going to boil it. It'll probably, like, would that... But was no. that the right thing to do, not eat that? I would definitely, re- we call that return that to the earth. <laughs> it was like, it was just horror. It was so sad. Like, he planted me, like, two, you know, like, 25 broccoli plants, like, I've been dreaming about for so long, and they were so beautiful. And the squirrels would take, like, two bites, like, poop, and move to the next one. I'm so sorry. What a bummer. Oh, yeah. I felt yeah, so bad that Mike did that, and then... I. I don't know, but I couldn't bring myself to eat it, but I shouldn't have ate it. Right. And I forget what the 
the food safety modernization act like the number of feet that it is it's all written out in it like if you have wildlife in your crops then you like measure out a certain radius around it right that you're not allowed to sell and those are probably good rules you know especially on larger operations um if deer get in the field you just like make a radius around it now for the home gardener it's gonna be like you used good common sense like don't eat that because it's one thing if it's chickens it's another thing if it's like wild animals right they could have any kind of foodborne disease now for commercial growers if it's chickens or if it's wild animals it's like not allowed to be in your crops that you're growing to sell which is a good rule um but that's that's why we keep the livestock completely separate so that if anybody gets loose and just goes for a run through the field then we have to take that all out of production for like I think 180 days. It's all laid out in our food safety plan, but one loose piggy, you know how they like to run around through everything. (laughs) (laughs) Your cows were so cute. They were just like, they were like the funnest, like they like, it was like, you could almost feel like what they were talking to you and like what they were saying and I don't know. I just loved your cows. But Which so, like, you, did we have the dairy cows or did we have the beefs? Do you remember? Yeah, both, I think. Uh, the probably, dairy cows are yeah. the ones I'm talking about. Like, there They're was so like this beautiful. mom and a baby, maybe, or like, you know, a, like a yearling or something over there. And the mom was just like, she would like bounce all over when the kids came over, and it was just the cutest thing. They're, I'm not a farm girl, so like, cows. that might yeah. could be like the closest I've gotten to a cow. Like, like i'm not animals were not like not that kind like i was had a dog that was like an animal my house a cat (laughs) dairy cows are so beautiful and you know it's it's really sad as vegetable growers the the season that overlaps with keeping dairy animals is really intense for us so um we have a friend who keep dairy cows and we trade with her and then when the kids are older I look forward to keeping a family cow again but for now it's just too much for us there's so much work but I miss the beautiful Jersey cow with her big eyes you know they're beautiful yeah yeah so (laughs) uh what was the other thing I was going to ask you then well okay so what's next I guess uh Good agricultural practices. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's next. What's next? <laughs> or what? what uh, um, like I guess I keep going back to like how you went from the quarter acre to the hat, and you it was like basically all that tractor. Uh, the BCS tractor is the, the most like we use it so much. Um, and for anybody wanting to scale up, I think anything more than a quarter acre, get JM's book buy the BCS, get what he says to get, and then make changes from there that suit you. But, I mean, I've heard, like, Elliot Coleman in The New Organic Grower, he says two people can work 60 hours a week and work an acre um, using hand tools. And I have so much mad respect for Elliot Coleman, but I don't think so. I think that two people... Working an acre intensively, you need 
to have the BCS. So it just, it's such a game changer and um, it'll really, if you have to take out a loan for it, like you, the loan is less expensive than going to the chiropractor. <laughs> it will, it will save your back. It's worth it. So, um, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of the BCS walking tractor. Okay. So yeah. maybe for listeners who are new or who don't know, like when you say intensively, does that like following the biointensive method? And like, do you want to explain how that oh, works? Is that great what you mean? Question. Yeah. Great question. Yes. That, um, intensive word was, I think originally used by Elliot Coleman in his wonderful book, the new organic grower. And it's a system that's different than vegetable row cropping. Um, so instead of cultivating with a four wheel tractor, instead of uh, the standard industry standard of tilling a field, going out and transplanting, mechanically uh, weeding, and then tilling it all back in at the end of the year. It's a system where you make permanent beds that are manageable on a human scale. So we have 12 inch walking paths and a 30 inch bed. And Elliot Coleman made up that size. And that's the industry standard now um, for intensive production. So intensive production means that we have very, very nutrient dense soil. We have smaller amount of space that we're working on. So we're able to put a lot back into that soil. It also means that we keep the beds very, very clean of weeds. And so we don't spend a whole lot of time weeding, which is huge. Um, intensive also means that as soon as it comes out of production, so let's say we harvested a second cutting of lettuce mix and that bed's done that bed will either be planted to a cover crop or a succession planting of crop in that same week. The beds are never just sitting there, ever. Um, they get turned over right away. And so that means that the soil is always covered and it's never, like you asked about erosion earlier, our intensive beds are never just sitting there. Um, yeah, so th I think that kind of covers the base of, of what intensive is. And yes, it's kind of merges over with the biointensive method, which is the uh, term that Elliot Coleman gave to his method of growing. And since then, there's been some like, oh, you know, is this intensive? Is that intensive? You know, there's some splitting hairs over it all, but it's like, if you're using a 30-inch bed system with 12-inch walking paths and you keep stuff in production and you're using minimal tillage and you're paying attention to your soil samples and you're giving back to the soil and it's getting better every year, I see that's intensive. Okay, that a couple sense? of questions. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so since you don't have your animals, any, like, what do you do for, like, you know, adding to your soil, like manure and things like that these days? 
Yeah, great question. That's always um, a tough one for us is finding healthy, you know, good source, yeah, something manure, yeah, something. That's hard for sure. Um, so we use uh, to get beds started. We use a big topping of compost from Kalispell Creamery. Oh yeah. So for those who aren't local, we are so fortunate that there's a dairy here. And that they do a pretty good job of managing some nice compost. Um, now that becomes problematic. There's not enough nitrogen in the vat to uh, keep the soil going long term. So we grow cover crops, um, which is a crop that you grow not to harvest, but just to reincorporate into the soil. That's another way that we um, balance the soil nutrients. And what and cover we, crops have you found that grow well in cow's pell? Well, we've got this kind of two different kinds. There's ones that you're growing for, um, like, just straight up covering the soil, keeping it covered, and don't give that much nutrition back. The best one that just will grow really fast for us that grows all season long if we just want something there is buckwheat. Cool. That's what I grew this year. Yeah. I tried. It, it's, it's a good one, and it'll, it can help get your, just like if you need more organic matter, it grows really fast, um, and it covers the soil right away, and it's got a lot of stuff there. So it yeah, doesn't it have little a, little leaves super fast. Super fast. Yeah, you don't want to let it go to seed, because then you'll have buckwheat forever. <laughs> I'm so, hoping I um, didn't do that last fall that like in the one bit the one bit I chopped down and put the raspberries in but the other bit I'm afraid it might not have ever it might have gone to seed and that's where I'm well, hoping if, to plant my blueberries next year so okay. I don't know well with a perennial crop like blueberries it wouldn't be a super huge deal it's more of a big deal like if because it'll winter kill you know buckwheat won't isn't a perennial so if you've got blueberries or something in there it could grow and kind of be a mess, but it's not like going to be there forever. It'd be more of a problem for things that we grow, like lettuce mix, like that. We don't want anything coming up except for what we plant um, because of the intensive model. So I don't think it'd be that big of a deal for your blueberries. We'll see. Mike be Mike might be like, you're never touching anything in the garden again. Don't even think of planting another thing ever. I can see it now. As it like where I want to plant is the blueberries, but I'm thinking it's like a foot away from his other bed where he plants all his like lettuce and peas and different I don't know. He's got the mini farm now. Uh my other question was about the, all right, so you have like these permanent beds. So does mm -hmm. that mean in between the permanent beds you have permanent walkways? Do you you never yes. plant where you walk? That's right. That's right. So our feet are the compaction that's yeah. happening. Um and we never that's right, we never plant in the walkway. The walkway is just for walking. Um one thing that we do now that's different than the model that's laid out by JM is that we don't make raised beds with the BCS anymore. So uh, that's great because it's one less step, but we that means that the paths aren't as clear. It's not as easy to tell where they're at. And that's one of the reasons that we have a highly trained 
crew is we don't want anybody walking on our permanent beds because even just the pressure from your feet creates a little soil compaction. So, um, I mean, like we can, if you're trained, you can tell where the beds are at. It's not that hard to tell, but visitors sure. just like walk on it and it's like, ah, don't, don't, don't walk on the beds. Yeah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Because especially, like, at the beginning of the year when it's still, like, before the seeds are even germinating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh. I wanted to ask you about... Uh, oh, well, what do you... Then what do you... If you're not making the beds with the BCF, what do you do? Are you using a broad fork? Or, like, are you not turning... Or what are you doing? It's because they're there already and you don't have to, like, turn them up now? Right. They're the, just the compaction from walking in the path makes it so that the paths are about two inches, like, lower. Um, and so you can just kind of tell where they're at. If that no, but sense. I mean, like, how come you don't have to, like, how come you don't have to turn the soil over with the tractor anymore? Oh, okay. So um, are you asking how we turn the beds over? Yeah. Okay. So there's maybe a, you don't anymore. I don't know, because there's this whole yeah. new no-till <laughs> okay. thing. There's do. an attachment for the BCS called a flail mower. Um, and so when a crop is done, like the example of the lettuce mix, we'll mow it, and it chops up all the crop debris really small. It, And then after that, we use the power harrow, which instead of going in a rotary motion like like a wheel the way that a tiller would it has a back and forth motion um so it just like laterally moves the soil down and you can adjust it depending on how much debris is there so we want to use just as small as pass as possible so we're only working the top two inches of the soil and that harrowing does kind of fluff it just a little bit. It also leaves the harrows exactly 30 inches. So it is after a bed's been harrowed, you can really tell where the bed is. And Jay and I are both really good at walking straight <laughs> with that tool. So you can see where the bed top, that perfect 30 inch bed top is um, when a bed's been turned over. So am I picturing this right? Like basically it's kind of like mowing the lawn, but turning the thing in at the same time, but mowing lettuce instead of the lawn. Yeah. Yeah. So we, you have to switch out. I almost want to get a second BCS just so we don't have to switch the darn thing so much, but there's the mower and then we switch the mower off. So we'll mow all the things that need to be mowed for the week. And then we switch the implement and we switch to the harrow. So after it's been mowed, then the harrow comes and the harrow's got a little roller on the back of it that rolls a perfect bed top. The first time we used this thing, I literally cried. I mean, it was just like, I can't believe this. <laughs> Before that, we used to use um, a bed roller that Johnny makes, Johnny's Selected Seeds makes that just rolls the top of the bed. Um, the harrow is amazing. It's such an amazing tool. It makes just a perfect bed top. 
Um, so we'll we'll actually mow, and then you had asked about amendments earlier. Oh yeah. Um, part of food safety for us is using that Kelspell Creamery compost. We only put that on at the end of the year because it's an animal manure, and it would need I think like 200 days before we're allowed to plant into that as commercial growers. So we only do that at the end so that we're of the season. So between plantings, we use a certified organic um, source of nitrogen that comes from poultry waste. It's not ideal because we have to buy it and we buy it out of state. I do have a lead on a, a local source, but we have to use you know certified organic amendments. So that gives us a little bump of nitrogen mid-season as we're flipping the beds. So we mow, put down amendments, and then harrow. And the harrow helps get the amendments down into the soil a little bit also. Now, 200 days, like, what if that manure was sitting on your property for, like, 200 like for a year before you put it on the beds? Or does it have to be 200 days after it's been put on the beds because it needs time to mix into the soil? It needs 200, and I'm not sure 200 is right. I'd have to consult. I know, but whatever it is, 180 or 200 or whatever Um, X amount of days. If it was on your own farm and you want to use it as a finished amendment, there's a ton of rules for that that I'm not very clear on. Um, You would have to get the compost up to temperature and you'd have to document that it had gone through um, like a high enough temperature for enough days and been turned enough times that all the pathogens in it are gone. So that's not that's not something we're interested in being set up for doing. So we just respect the uh, use of any animal compost being treated as manure if that makes sense. So there's different rules for manure than there are for finished compost, but since we're buying compost that has not been through a professional compost facility, we, for food safety, treat it as manure. Make sense? It does. Lots of things about food safety here. Hey, what about, let's talk about your eating the the academy. Oh, yeah, let's do so this year, our, we're so excited about this. Our, um, each year we make a major infrastructure upgrade to the farm. And in years past, that's been things like a new high tunnel, a new tractor, uh, updating the pack shed, making a better prop house. This year, we're really excited. Our major infrastructure investment is the Lower Valley Farm Vegetable Academy. This is a feature that is included for free in CSA membership, but is open to the larger community for $7 a month or $62 a year. And it's an online uh, school that we've created this winter. And it's got um, basically our last six years of CSA newsletters, all of the teaching, all of the information that I've had in the newsletters, I've expanded it, and I've organized it, and I've made it easily accessible in one place. So um, it's hosted through teachable.com, and you can uh, go to our website and get to the 
Academy through our website, and I have a couple of the things on there set up on preview, so people can go look at it. Um, and it's really affordable, right? Like, isn't it only like, I want to say like $7 a month or something? Like yeah. It's a really good deal. It's $7 a month, and I think it's going to be a good resource definitely for people in our CSA. Also for anybody who's interested in seasonal eating, whether you have a garden or you shop at the market every week. Um, I, for the last six years now, I spend between market and farm stand about six hours a week talking to people about vegetables and about how to prepare them and how to eat them and what's in season when and why. And so I've got a lot of practice doing that. And I organized the things I say over and over into this academy. And um, there's six diff or five different parts of it. The first part is the A to Z guide. So that just goes through crop by crop, every crop we grow. And it tells you how to store it, how to prep it, what to do if you have a little bit extra, and then the crop availability here in northwestern Montana. And what do you mean so you crop availability? So, like, um, for instance, garlic scapes, you know, it says available usually oh, like the last what time of year? to the first week of July. Got it. Uh, and something listeners maybe you don't know about Mandy is that didn't you and Jay meet in art school? And, oh, yes. like, she yeah. has not just, like, this beautiful eye. Like, when you go to her um, farm stand, you see these just gorgeous, giant photos she's taken of her family. Like, she just has this really creative, beautiful, photographic eye. And just the way she's put this together, it's just like a work of art. And oh, um, thank you, definitely Jackie. something I know uh, people would want to check out. There's lots of information. And then I want to say you're the person that told me, I mean, I don't even think I knew what nutrient dense food was before I touched you. And you were the one that told me about Sally Fallon from the Western A. Yeah. Price Foundation. Mm -hmm. Like I've learned just so much from you. It's just amazing. And, well, and what you put together, you gave me like a little inside look and it was, it's just, it's just lovely. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, um, it reads really well. You can hear your personality. You can hear your little love of your family and just like your voice for sharing things with people and your passion for caring for our environment and caring for your body through food. Thank you so much. I, I've been really intentional making this about meeting people where they're at. So like as a grower, we get everybody from people whose doctors said, you need to eat five vegetables a day right? Um, you need to eat the rainbow to people who are way deep down the rabbit hole of super nutrient dense food, right? So we've got people who like maybe are where I at was at 20 years ago where I barely knew how to like make pasta, right? <laughs> to where I'm at now, where the people who are like at home making sauerkraut and seeking out raw milk, you know, we've got everybody on that spectrum. And there's something in the academy for everybody. So people who are totally new to seasonal eating, and people who are like 400 level, there's something there for you that you're going to learn. And my intention with this is for wherever you're at on your seasonal eating journey, for it to not be overwhelming, to make tiny changes, one change at a time. 
And so that might be somebody who's really comfortable with where they're at. Like, hey, we're doing pretty good. I like how much time I spend in the kitchen. That person might be like, oh, but I've never made collard wraps, right, out of collard greens. And we've got a video on here of how to do that. So it might just help you get out of a cooking rut or show you one new skill. And then there's other people that I know it's just going to be like, oh, my gosh, this is like I've wanted to know how to do all of these things. And I don't know how to do any of them. For everybody, there's going to be something there for them. So... And also, like, I think you don't have to be in Montana to belong to a CSA or go to the farmer's market and be totally. like, what the heck is this that they put in my CSA basket? Or how do I cook bok choy? Or what do I do with right. these strange things? And you, you've you got a lot of, like, you know, so when they get home, there's a resource for them that's specifically um, geared towards vegetable. Like, you're, oh, that's what I was going to say. Like, you said you grow 120 crops Mm -hmm. But, like, that must be, like, including, like, six varieties of tomatoes or something, right? Yes, like, I right. Mean, uh... 15, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to say anything about the crops that you guys grow or anything like that? Um, yeah, you know, I just got my seed order finished yesterday, so it's fresh on the top of my head. Oh, excellent. Um, because, like, one of the things I, I'm, i like, on my free garden course book workbook, I, I asked Mandy if I could put these pictures she made, like, last year on Instagram she posted that uh, she was, like, moving her beds around these index cards. It was, like, the ultimate Tetris game trying to, and just, <laughs> I'm so fascinated. What do you, do you grow? Well, the, I think you're talking about the crop rotation, and that's part of organic farming is how we rotate crops through because different crops have different nutrient needs so rotation helps with pest pressure and it helps with making sure that different roots go down different depths and they're pulling out different nutrients and just keeping the soil balanced that way and it does it is it's like serious tetris to have 120 crops i want to be rotating them so that nothing is in the same space um like within three years of each other it's it's a it's a big puzzle. I get started on that puzzle next week. Um, but the crop varieties have been really interesting to me as a person from Indiana moving to Northwest Montana. Um, there's some things. There's a couple of varieties that I'm like I'm so happy with this. But like every year I trial out like six new kinds of tomatoes, just looking for that classic tomato flavor in a way that'll grow here <laughs> so I've grown like all of the I've tried out all of the weird heirloom Russian and German varieties and every year there's a couple new types and I'm I like trying them all so um I love heirloom tomatoes and I live somewhere where it's cold at night all year so <laughs> You know the struggle with that, right? Yeah, I'm glad to hear it from you. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm just going to grow cherry tomatoes because regular tomatoes are just too frustrating and too hard and you, and they get there and then you, they're green and you can bring them in and some will turn red and it's just like, oh, it's so sad. So we're two staple tomatoes no um, for northern growers that, that I grow every year now. Um, I really like... From high mowing seeds, I get the Glacier Saladet tomato. It's just a 
about a two inch diameter tomato. And, um, you know, these are the kinds of tomatoes in Indiana that I would have had ripe, like, on Mother's Day. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, I grew them, like, as a precursor to the actual tomatoes. <laughs> but here, Glacier has been such a good performer for us. And it is a saladette, uh, but it has a real tomato texture. So um, I grow that as our, like, our main crop is the Glacier. And then my favorite uh, heirloom so far is Mountain Princess, also available through High Moen Seeds. And it's a, a like a small beef steak. Um, and it's, I love trellising tomatoes, so I'm sad that this is our heirloom of choice that we just stake. Um, we stake these up. I, and uh, they're, they're a nice, dependable 72-day northern heirloom tomatoes so those are our two main tomatoes and then I always try out some more all right Every- i'm gonna order those for mike i swore i'm gonna order seeds for mike in february this year and not just be like <laughs> going to the store last minute like oh, yeah time so they never have the right I, the store they know they won't have what you need so no yeah that's probably why well, another good source for northern tomatoes is uh, if you like heirloom and open pollinated seeds is adaptive seed. They're a little seed house that's based in Oregon. So they've they've uh, got all of these really lesser known strains of open pollinated seeds and heirloom seeds that are for the Pacific Northwest. And they're not necessarily for Montana, right? They've got lots of stuff in there that's like 100 days. And I don't do anything that's 100 days except for like Brussels sprouts. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, they've got they've got a lot of good unknown um, varieties of tomatoes on there. That's another thing that you guys sell that I always think always looks so elegant are your little baskets of flowers and... The edible oh, flowers. They're just so lovely. Well, I know that. you're probably super busy and we've been talking for a long time. Like, do you want to, anything else you wanted to say that I didn't get to? Um, not that I can think of. I'm just so excited to be here and get to talk about the farm and introduce people to the Lower Valley Farm Academy. Oh, and I've got, if folks go to the website, to our website, you can sign up on there for just a free preview of the Academy. Um, to kind of check out what it's about. It's like five emails and you get a free ebook or some recipes with each email and it introduces you and walks you through all the different parts of that new tool. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's way cool. How, so how do they sign up for that? Um, you go to lowervalleyfarm.com and up pops the homepage and it's got a little form there on the homepage that says we want to share a preview of the academy with you and you put in your name and your email address and it signs you up to get some emails from me excellent well like i said listeners it's super cool the way she's got it all laid out and informative and just i know you can't go wrong so thank you so much for sharing with us today and happy valentine's to you and jay happy valentine's to you too jackie thank you yeah Hey there, green future growers. Would you like your friends and neighbors to create an organic oasis too? 
Would you like others in your area to learn about earth-friendly practices for their gardens and yards? If so, we would love it if you would share the Organic Gardener podcast with your local community or college radio station today. Thanks again for listening and remember, grow local.